Let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. Yahweh, we come before you this morning to give you all our praise, all our adoration, all our worship. And Lord, as we behold you in your word this morning, as we read what you said to Israel through Isaiah and what you say to us through Isaiah, I pray we would all be open and teachable. Lord, you would use the words in our hearts. You would judge our thoughts and intentions and conform us to the image of your Son so that you will be glorified in everything we do. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I tell you what, we're getting into a really fun section of Isaiah. So we've gone through one servant's psalm, there are three more to go, and next chapter starts the next one. And in this chapter, once again, God is going to speak to Israel, and God is going to speak to you through the words of Isaiah, as Isaiah declares, I mean, as God declares his glory and his sovereignty, and his majesty, and his purposes, not only for Israel, but for us. Let me read you an introductory statement. It says, Isaiah 48 looks back to all all of chapters 40 through 47. Chapter 40 began, Comfort, comfort my people. God comforted his ancient people with a promise of release from the Babylonian captivity. Bring them home and show them his glory. The problem was he planned to use a pagan conqueror named Cyrus the Great to set those events in motion. The Jewish exiles choked on that. In fact, the actual appearing of the glory of the Lord was even more problematic. The glory came down in an ordinary man named Jesus of Nazareth who didn't throw off the yoke of Roman tyranny but died on a Roman cross. That was a problem too, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And so it is today. Every culture has its prejudices against God. And here in chapter 48, Isaiah is frank about our bias against God for a redemptive purpose. He wants us to know that God displays his grace towards backwards people like us for his own glory. Therefore, nothing can keep him from fulfilling his promises to us. And that's really what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about God's promises, and we're going to see not only the deliverer Cyrus, But we're going to see in this chapter the deliverer of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see what God has to say about it. As you already probably figured out, chapter 48 concludes the larger argument in the basically the seven previous chapters. It closes a unit, and he will turn his attention once again as we close this, or in chapter 48, to stubborn Israel. After more than 1,400 years of the faithfulness of God to his people Israel, by now they should have known, they should be able to trust in him, they should look to him after they have seen all of his miraculous deliverance. 
Let me read you from Nehemiah 9, starting in verse 26. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had testified to them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the ones who distressed them, and they afflicted them with distress. But at a time of their distress, they cried to you, and you listened from heaven, and according to your abundant compassion, you gave them saviors, and they saved them from the hand of the ones that distressed them. But as soon as they had rest, they returned to do evil before you, Therefore, you forsook them in the hand of their enemies. And basically, Nehemiah is going to go on and talk about the unfaithfulness of Israel in spite of God's incredible blessing, his demonstrated power, his faithfulness to them for over 1,400 years. But what we need to understand is Israel is much like our hearts. It's really easy to look at Israel and point our finger and go, yeah, those, those Jews, man, Israel. But we need to understand that God has done so much for us, and there's still times when we don't trust him. And I would argue God has done a greater miracle in you than even those miracles he did in Judah. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. He called you not just to be a nation, but God called you into fellowship with the Trinity. God is more faithful than we deserve. He's called us out of darkness into a relationship with both him and his Son and his Spirit, If he can do that, why do we fail to trust him in every other area of our life? Right Now, some of you may be going out there and go, no, Art, man, you don't understand, man. I trust Jesus. I trust him. Really? Then you have no fear and no anxiety because you trust God, right? Well, wait a minute. You didn't say that, right? Again, I'm I'm not saying that any of you have have abandoned him and turned your backs, but you have to admit that there are times in your life when our faith can fail or totter. 1 Corinthians 10.13, though, reminds us that, quote, no temptation has overtaken you, but but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with with a temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. So if you believe, if you trust in God, you understand that there is no sin that will rule in your life. There is no sin to which we must give into because as he has promised us, he's faithful that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able And let me just leave you with the words of Matthew as we go on. I mean, the words of Jesus in Matthew 10 before we uh, close out my introduction here. And Jesus says this in Matthew 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. 
but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a Syrian? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your heads are numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. See, Israel, we're going to see, was given so many opportunities to see God's faithful action in their history, and yet they still turn against Him. Yet we need to understand that God was faithful with us, right? God saved you. God did the greatest miracle when He turned your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He took a dead person and made them alive. And if you're a believer in this room, that's what God did for you, right? You were blind, but now you see. So let's get into the chapter. We have a lot to cover this morning. And the first one I want to talk about is, I want you to note in verses 1 through 8, God's, I mean, Israel's failure to listen to God. Israel's failure to listen. Let me read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, by the name Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and bring to remembrance the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. For they themselves, uh, they call themselves after a holy city and are supported by the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is his name. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to be heard. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass, because I know that you are stiff, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. Therefore, I declared them to you long ago. Before they happened, I caused them to be heard by you. Least you say, my idol has done them. And my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard, look at all this. And even you will not declare it. I caused you to hear new things from this time, even things, even hidden things, which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago. And before today, you had not heard them. Least you say, behold, I knew them. Indeed, you have not heard. Indeed, you have not known. Indeed, even from long ago, your ear has not been opened because I knew that you would deal very treacherously and you have been called a transgressor from the womb. Well, I wouldn't want to hear that said about our church, would you? What we're going to talk about, what we're going to see here in these opening eight verses of the chapter is that God is going to confront Judah. He's going to confront Israel over their blindness which is caused by their heart, their willingness to try and ascribe to what God did to an idol, 
and not listen to what he said. So first of all, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Israel gave God God's word lip service, right? They did not heed it. They did not look at it. The centerpiece of these two verses is the last line. They heard, but not in truth or righteousness. The Jewish exiles really were God's people. They had a lot going for them. But Isaiah here points out something went wrong. They profess their faith. They call on Jerusalem, but they do not do it in truth or righteousness. They really weren't listening to God, not with a follow-through that reaches to the implications of the gospel that penetrates their heart, they were, in a true sense, nominal, and they, in a true sense, really did not hear what God had to say to them. They had other things. They listened to their idols. Notice he starts off and he says, hear this. That's an emphatic way of God saying, pay attention. Now, I'll tell you, church, I will tell you, brothers and sisters, when we read this in Scripture, you ought to stop, right? When you're doing your own personal reading and you hear God say, Behold, hear this. You ought to stop and listen to what he has to say. God is trying to get your attention. He's sticking his finger in your chest. It's an emphatic statement. He tells Israel and he tells us to listen to what he has to say. God tells them to listen to him because they are his chosen ones. Right? They are his chosen ones. He says, you are called by the name Israel. Right? You swear by the name of Yahweh. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to be my people. You call Jerusalem your holy city. But in the end, it's hypocrisy. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 9, He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. And we see Israel's hypocrisy. Israel is a nation that calls Jerusalem God's city, their capital. It says that God called them as an infinite. He called them from the loins of Judah. They, they claim his name. But not in truth, it's all hypocrisy. They say we're God's chosen people, but they don't act like it. Psalm 50, verse 16 says this about Israel. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recount my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with idolaters. Let your mouth, you let your mouth loose in evil, and you harness your tongue for deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. What he's saying here, the psalmist is reminding Israel of their hypocrisy. They say one thing, they do another. They say, oh, I'll take God's covenant in my mouth, but they don't obey it. 
Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 7 verse 9. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear while lying, and burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a robber's den in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares Yahweh. Whoa. Right? Whoa. That ought to make you sort of sit back and, and just make sure that is not where your heart is. This is God's condemnation of them. And he says, oh, you say all these things, but you burn incense to Baal, you walk after other gods, and then you go, oh, this is God's house. This is our house. You liars and hypocrites. Jesus highlights that Israel is no different 700 years later when Jesus speaks in Matthew 23, verse 2, um, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and keep, but, not do, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. When the Pharisees preach the word and tell you the word, you do what the word says, but you don't do what they do because they aren't doing the word. Right? They're not doing that. You know, that's part of the, just an aside, that's why we're so careful when we select elders and deacons that their lives need to be proven. Right, We need to see that they are living what they say. And if they're not, we'll remove them in a heartbeat. Right? If I don't do what I say, then I should be removed in a heartbeat. You don't want leaders like that in your church. Then I want you to look at what God says about Israel's perversion in verses 3 through 8. Um. He says, I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to be heard. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass, because I knew that you are stiff, and your neck is an iron sinew, and you have a forehead of bronze. And then he goes on, as we've already read, and he talks about how they're molten images, and they want to they wanna do these things, and he goes, even things hidden that you have not known. What's he talking about here? What's he talking about? Well, let's, let's look at it. First of all, in verses 3 through 5, God condemns their willingness to believe his word. Israel failed to believe past promises, past prophecies of a coming exile. God had warned them he was going to do this. They knew it was going to happen. Some think that the former things are still future, and um, I think when he's talking about the former things, he's talking about the past. But then he says, I'm going to tell you some new things that you haven't heard. God tells them that he knows they're stiff-necked. They have a forehead of bronze. How would you like to have somebody say that about you? How would you like to have your wife come up and say, hey, you're stiff-necked with a forehead of bronze? I don't know. I'm thinking it's bad. <laughs> God made a warning to Israel in Deuteronomy 
And 800 years later, he acts. He gives a warning through Isaiah that he's going to do this. He warned Israel and Assyria conquered them. He warned Judah. And now Babylon's going to conquer them. If you want to see that, go back to Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But it will be, if you do not listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and keep and do all his commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. God told them he was going to do this. He warned them. And still they didn't listen. Right? They didn't listen. You know, I just want you to understand, this is as applicable today as it was 2,700 years ago. Right? It's still applicable today. Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then goes on, God goes on to say, okay, now I'm going to pour my wrath out on you. And he describes what that looks like. And that's exactly what we see happening in our culture today. Right? Exactly what we see happening. He says he will give them over to depraved behavior. Men with men, women with women. And in the end, the ultimate part of God's wrath is he gives them over to a depraved mind. That's what it says. A depraved mind. What is that? It means a mind incapable of moral judgment. It's a mind that can go, no, really, I may look like a man, but I'm a woman. Really. Seriously. Right? Uh-huh. I mean, those of us who have been born again and who have eyes to see, look at that. And we agree with Paul in Romans 1 when he says, pressing, professing to become wise, they have become fools. We look at it and we see total foolishness. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. But it is the dominant worldview in our culture. Folks, I've said this before, it isn't going to get better. It isn't. Unless God brings a miraculous revival, which he can do. But when I look at Romans 1, I see us under his wrath, right? Not preparing for a revival. And I don't think it's going to get better. And I don't care who you vote for, right? I went and voted early this week. Right? I'm not saying don't vote, but I'm saying that isn't my hope. Right? It isn't going to get better. But I believe and trust Jesus because he is faithful. Now, I want you to notice it says to that God is going to declare 
new things to them. Look at verse 6 of chapter 48. He's going to declare new things. He's already told them about his judgment. He's already given them the old covenant. He's already told them that Cyrus is going to deliver them from their captivity by the Babylonians, right? But now he's going to tell them something new. Huh. Well, what do you think that might be? If you're Joe Bag of Bagels sitting back then, and Isaiah says, look, I'm a, God's going to tell you something new, I would want to pay attention. Something new? You mean our forefathers didn't hear this? No, this new. From this point forward, the prophecies of Messiah's first and second coming and the restoration of Israel to a new distinctiveness is going to be revealed to them. Remember I said, what's chapter 49? It's the second uh, uh, song. It's the second servant song. And the four servant songs are songs about who? Jesus. Not some amorphous future prophet, Jesus Christ himself. In detail. I would argue Isaiah 53 is probably the clearest explanation of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement that you'll read anywhere in Scripture. We see that clearly, and God is now going to declare new things. Right? We're going to see Jesus on display in an incredible way. Despite what they've already seen and what God is telling them about future grace, they still rebel. And notice he says they are a transgressor from the womb. Right? By the way, that was true of all of you. Right? You need to understand that we're all transgressors from the womb, are we not? Right? I was born in sin. You were born in sin. My kids were born in sin. You know, I remember I had a daughter who um, we put her in the car seat to take her home from the hospital. She screamed the entire way home and did that for the next two years every time you put her in a car seat. Until you took her out, she screamed. And we drove from Alamogordo all the way to California, and she was able to scream the whole time. <laughs> she was a sinner from the womb. <laughs> But God saved her. God saved me. God saved you. By the way, don't think you're any better. She could just scream better than you. So Isaiah 67, verse 17. For behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come. When God says he's telling them something new, he means it. He says, look, I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Chapter 49, like next week. Verse 7. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return? I will also give you as a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Who do you think when he says that you should be my servant, by the word my is capitalized, the word servant is capitalized. Who do you think that is? That is Jesus. He is going to be a light 
not only to save all of Israel, he's going to be a light to, what does it say? All the nations. That would be you, by the way. Okay, that would be you. Let me read you Jesus' perspective from Matthew 13, verse 13, where Jesus says this, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, and they do not understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people becomes dull, and with their ears they scarcely see, and they have closed their eyes, and they would, at least they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Jesus is saying, look, these people are hearing the very clear words of God, but they're not listening. God is giving them everything about his future deliverance and how they can live under his blessing, how they can live the kind of life he intended for them. When he made all those blessing promises in Deuteronomy and throughout the Bible, but they would not have it. They would not have it. They don't hear. And, and I'll just tell you, right? Scripture tells us that everything pertaining to life and godliness can be found where? In secular psychologists. I saw this commercial where you can now get online and there's all these therapists and they'll help you. Are you having problems with this, that, or anything, you know, from your coffee doesn't taste good to your car's not? Well, we'll give you therapy online and blah, 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 blah. And I felt like saying, no, I have this book, right? Everything pertaining to life and godliness is not found online. It's not found in a therapist. It's not found in a psychoanalyst. God is going to speak to you in dreams. You're not going to get a special word. It is found in this book. And at the beginning of this chapter, he says, hear this. Hear it. You're going to go from here and chance is going to preach to you again. My exhortation to you is hear it. Hear it. And then this is, this ought to be a great encouragement to you. Anybody in this room need to be encouraged this morning? Anybody a little discouraged? You know, I am. I'm a little discouraged. Yesterday, my favorite team got trounced by army. What could be worse? Right? So, yeah, but that's, yeah, I don't care about that. Um, that was humor. Okay, enough. Back to getting serious. Let me read you verses 9 through 11. I want you to hear your God speaking to his chosen ones. For the sake of my name, I delay my anger, and for my praise I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. 
And how can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Hear this. Hear this. God is saying to Israel and God is saying to you, I will act in your life ultimately for my name's sake. Do you understand, as hard as this might be to believe, God did not save you for your sake? Before the foundation of the world, the Trinity wasn't sitting around going, you know, Art, I really like that. Yeah, he's really cool. Let's save that one. Okay, I like him. He deserves it. Right? That's not the discussion that was going on in the promise that was made before the foundation of the world. God chose each and every one of you for His own sake. And think of the implication of that. If God chose you for His own sake, will He ever abandon you? No. Not because of you, but God chose you for whose sake? His sake. That's what the text says. And I want you to notice he says, My glory I will not give to another. Let me read you a couple quotes from Piper. He says the climax, now listen to this. The climax of God's happiness is in the delight he takes in the echoes of his excellence, in the praises of his people. That is an awesome quote. The climax of God's happiness is the delight he takes in the echoes of his excellence, in the praise of his people. See, when we stand before him, we praise his excellence because he is worthy. You know, you are here this morning not because the coffee's really good, not because you want some of somebody's donuts or whatever. We're not here because, you know, that's just what we do. What are we doing? Yeah, we go to church. Why? I don't know. We just go to church. That is not why you're here. You are here because your Creator and your Savior is worthy of your worship. And you have come to proclaim His excellencies and to give Him praise and thanksgiving. That's why you're here. And he is going to speak to us through his word. Not through me, not through chance. We're just instruments. It's through his word ministered in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he is glorified in that. A couple pages later, Piper says this, God's own glory is uppermost in his own affections. In everything he does, his purpose is to preserve and to display that glory. To say that his own glory is uppermost in his own affections means that he puts a greater value on it than anything else. He delights in his own glory above all things. You need to understand that. See, God said here in the passage, my glory I will not give to another. Why? Because who deserves all glory, all honor, all praise? God and God alone. Now I want you to stop and think for a minute. If God were to value 
anything above his own glory, what would that make God? It'd make him an idolater. For God to desire and, and have an affection for anything other than his own glory would make him an idolater. There is nothing above him, and anything above his own glory is not worthy of his attention. Right? We need to understand, does that make God arrogant? No, it makes him not an idolater. Yeah, thank you. Right? If you have any affection or any desire above Christ and above God, above Yahweh in your life, and you give glory to anything else, you are an idolater. Repent. Right? There is nothing we are to cherish and love more than God because He is worthy of that. God acts for no greater cause than his own glory. Now that may be hard for you to understand at first, but if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. What else would God, you know, I think, you know, I'm God creator of the whole universe, but I'm going to worry about art's glory more than mine. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think so. That would be a that blasphemous. To say that seriously would be horrible. It's one of those things, if somebody said it, I would get away because I don't want the lightning bolt to burn me. Right? God declares that he will act for his own name's sake. He will fulfill his promises and not allow Israel to be cut off. He, will, he won't act and no one will be able to come, be able to criticize or stop him. Because he is acting for his own glory, and he will not share that with another created thing. And, and by the way, that ought to affect what you're going to go do in about an hour and 15 minutes. Right? When you go there, you're going to give him all your praise, all, because you delight to do that. And because we know that he delights in the praises of his people. He delights in it. You bring joy to God when you delight him in true, sincere, honest worship, which was Judah was not doing. Let me read you a passage from Ezekiel. It's a long passage, but it's just so good. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. He's talking here about his glory, and he's going to talk about the new covenant. He's going to talk about both. Listen, I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, to which you have come. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares, uh, declares Lord Yahweh. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight, and I will take you from the nations 
gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. And you will inhabit the land that I gave to your fathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and will not bring a famine on you, I will multiply the, multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves to your own faces for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares Yahweh, let it be known to you, be ashamed and feel dishonor for your ways, O house of Israel. Now in there, he's talking about the new covenant when he says, I'm going I'm to take away your sin, I'm going to put a heart of flesh where there used to be a heart of stone. Remember earlier I said that he is going to say new things to Israel. Well, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to talk about a new covenant. He's going to save them, not like they have been, like in the previous covenant. He's going to give them a new covenant. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who is known the mind of the Lord, or become his counselor, or who has given to him that it might be repaid to him. And from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Right? He is unsearchable. He is telling Judah, look, you have been sinful, but for my name's sake, I am going to act. And here's where this is an encouragement to you. You know, there are times I look back and like the passage says, I look at my own iniquities, my own abominations, and it says here, you will loathe yourselves to your own face. There are times in my heart I do that. Because I realize, see, you guys sit, on, and I got a tie, and I look really nice, and I teach on Sundays, and you go, oh, Arch, a nice guy. But you don't know my heart. I do. My wife doesn't really know my heart. I do. And I know all those times in my heart where I have betrayed God. I have not loved Him as He deserved. I've let something else compete for affection for Him. Right? But the good news is He is not going to save me and deliver me through all that for my name's sake. He's going to do it for His name's sake. And by the way, that's true of every one of you. Your salvation is not secured because of what you're going to do. 
Don't come to church and go, you know, God's going to save me because I go to church every Sunday. God isn't going to save you because you go to church every Sunday. God's going to save you for His name's sake. Because He called you and He gave you a heart of flesh that ultimately He will be glorified in you. And that drives your life, by the way. You're going to live your life in a way that does what? Glorifies Him, because that's why you were created. And then I want to look at the final section, verses 12 through 22. God's sovereignty and the demand for Israel to listen. God, once again, is going to proclaim His sovereignty, and then He's going to tell Israel to listen and pay attention. Look at verse 12. Hear me, O Jacob, and even Israel whom I called. I am He. I am the first. I am also the last. Also my hand formed the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. I call to them, and they stand together. Assemble all of you and hear. Who among you has declared these things? Yahweh loves him and will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon. I will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have drawn him and brought him, and he will make his way successful. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the first, have I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. So now Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am Yahweh, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like waves of the sea. Their seed would have been sand and the offspring from their loins like its grains. Their name would be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans. Declare with a sound of joyful shouting, cause this to be heard. Bring it forth to the end of the earth. Say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them through the waste places. He made the water flow out from the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There was no peace for the wicked, says Yahweh. Now this passage is one of those passages where we're going to see two deliverers sort of intermingled. There is a lot of different views from different commentators. Clearly, part of this is messianic. Clearly. And part of it may apply to Cyrus, and part of it may not. I'm going to kind of tell you what I think is going on here. I want you to look. He says, Thus says Yahweh the Holy One, I am Yahweh, who leads you the way you should go. And he says, um, I'm sorry, let me back up. Um, it says, in verse 14, assemble all of you and hear who among you has declared these things. Yahweh loves him. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon. His arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. So here's the question. 
Is that talking about Cyrus, who is in fact going to deliver Israel from Babylon? Or is that talking about somebody else who's going to deliver Israel and all of us from the future Babylon? Well, um, so here's, here's kind of how I take a look at that. First of all, I want you to note in verses 12 and 13 that God declares his majesty. Did you see it? God declares his majesty. In the second half of the chapter, God is going to apply the truth of the first half. If God reveals his glory, what are the implications? Isaiah leaves us with four assurance. First of all, God will never fail. God will never fail. He says, I am the first and I am also the last. My hand founded the earth. It spreads out the heavens. Who can do that? Who is going to oppose God? Who is going to stop his ways from being done? Nobody. Nobody is going to oppose what he has done. And God is, see, when God says that, I am the first and the last. I spread out the heavens. And by the way, I call every one of them by name. Right? You know, it's interesting. There's all these astronomers and stuff, and they're trying to look at all the stars, and they try to name them, and they try and do it, but the stars are too. And then we got Hubble. What's the problem with Hubble? Well, we look up, and what we thought were stars were galaxies full of stars. The stars are so innumerable, it's incomprehensible. We look into the heavens, and the universe is incomprehensibly large and complex. Right? You can just look at, at these pictures from Hubble and the newest telescope they got in orbit, and there's galaxies that are as numerous as stars. And galaxies, by the way, are filled with hundreds of stars or more. It's just incomprehensible. And God says, I call them all. Do you realize that all that vastness of the universe, God spoke, and there it was? Right? No Big Bang, none of that junk. God spoke, and they were there. And he says, by the way, if I can do that, is anybody going to be able to oppose me carrying out all these things I've just said? What's the answer to that question? Yeah, big, big I don't think so. So let's look at the chosen warrior in verses 14 through 16, Alpha. First of all, it is clear that God chose Cyrus as to be the conqueror of Babylon. God is, by the way, unembarrassed by his plan. He says that he loves the Persian warlord. God is asking to look beyond that. So if we understand this to be Cyrus, then he's saying, I love him. Now, the other view is the fact that God would not say that about somebody other than Christ, that Jesus is the instrument here. Jesus is the ultimate warrior who is going to deliver not only against this Babylon, but the future Babylon, right? And part of the reason I think that's probably true is he goes, remember earlier in the chapter, he says, I'm going to tell you new things you haven't heard. Now, has he already told them about Cyrus? Yes, he has. So let me read you a quote from John MacArthur, because I think it's always good, you know, if you agree with him for the most part. 
says, beginning with verse 6, the prophet began to write of new things. Babylon is the final one of verse of Revelation 18, and the instrument of God's judgment is Messiah. <coughs> the pronouns refer to Jesus Christ, whom the Lord will anoint to defeat the final Babylon at a second coming and bring Israel to her land and kingdoms. Thus it is not Cyrus, that it is not Cyrus is also clear from the statement, the Lord loves him, which is true, too strong to apply to a pagan king, but not too strong to apply to his beloved Jesus Christ. So, here's the deal. We will not throw you out of this church. If you want to say at the beginning of verse 16 there, when it talks about the one who is going to go after Babylon, that that is Cyrus. We won't do church discipline on you for that. Okay? But clearly, look at the rest of it, where he says this. He says, draw in me to hear this. From the first I have spoken, not in secret, from the time it took place, I was there. Now listen to this. So now Lord Yahweh has sent me, capitalized, and his spirit. Clearly, this is messianic. Clearly. The other reason I believe this, remember, chapter numbers and stuff may be in your LSB or your whatever, but they're not in the original text. And we're going to transition to chapter 49, which is clearly messianic. Clearly a messianic. So I tend to look at this all as referring to Christ. And clearly the last part is, clearly the last part is messianic because he is called my servant, capitalized, and his spirit. That is not referring to Cyrus. So God looks beyond Cyrus to the perfect conqueror. He was, he was not the prophet, um, the, he was not the one the prophet spoke of earlier, but Messiah, the servant of the Lord, and his Holy Spirit, and he will be the one who will gather Israel. He will be the one who will bring them into all these places. Um, even in our unwelcome experiences, Christ is present beyond the obvious. Christ is there. Christ is the one who is going to ultimately deliver Judah from its enemies. It is Christ is the one who is going to ultimately destroy the nations. Um, look at Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 7. Right? This is one of those passages where we're going to see first and second coming stuff within the same passage. The Spirit of, the law of Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, and He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and a day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant, the, uh, grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. Wow. And we know that this is first and second coming stuff 
because in Luke, Jesus reads this very passage, and he starts in verse 1, and he says in verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh, and then he stops before the day of vengeance of Yahweh our God to comfort all of them. He stops. And then he tells those in the synagogue, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? The one who's come to bring freedom to those enslaved to sin is me. Right? So, you know, I would, I, I like when we look at different people who exegete a text. I'm thinking if Jesus exegetes the text, I'm believing that. So. And notice God's lament over Israel's obstinate disbelief in verses 17 through 22. Chastisement by the, um, of Israel by the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. Um, someday they will end Israel heeds the Lord's commandment and God's punishment will turn to prosperity. But he pronounces judgment on them. He will punish them, but ultimately he will deliver them. Look at 65 verse 18. It says, Be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and people for joy. God wants them to know he's not going to just deliver them, but his intent for them is that they would have joy. God's intent for them, and we read that in the text, he says you can have peace like a river. He says that, that they are going to um, enjoy they will have all their needs met, and they will have joy and be satisfied in Yahweh. Right? In Psalm 25, verse 8, it says, Good and upright is Yahweh, therefore he instructs sinners in his way. He is good, he is upright. In verse 19, he talks about the sand and the grain. Because of Israel's disobedience, God's promise to Abraham to multiply his descendants has not been fully fulfilled. Even though the nation was temporarily set aside during the Babylonian captivity, and then during the dispersion in 70 AD, Israel was scattered, but God is beginning to fulfill his promises to Israel. And in 1948, he brought Israel together in disbelief, and he's going to enter into judgment with them, but then one day he is going to bring them all together in belief and establish the millennial kingdom. He tells them in verse 20 to go from Babylon. I have freed you. Leave. Go. Right? And you can look at Zechariah chapter 12, um, verse 10 through chapter 13, verse 1. I'll just read part of it. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Who is the one whom they are going to weep over? It says it and makes it really clear. So that they will look on the one whom they have pierced, and they will... Who is that? Clearly. Clearly. See, this is new stuff. You're, and we're going to see this, by the way, 
You go, well, hey, Art, that's Zechariah. That's not Isaiah. Well, wait a couple chapters, right? And and Kyle's over there, like chapter 53, I'll teach that. But no, he's not going to, right? He says that there's no thirst. And I want you to notice at the end of the chapter, at the very end of chapter 48, he says this. He says... Let me flip over. There is no peace for the wicked, says Yahweh. There is no peace. And we got a a, a brochure, a thing, a newsletter, whatever, from Texas Right to Life. And they had a picture that just grieved me. And it just shows the stubbornness and the, the rebellious attitude that is in the heart of people today, just like it was in Judah back then. Right? And um, the thing is, there's, there's no peace for them. They think, if, for example, in this one, that if they can have, quote, um, abortion without any restrictions, free, with no remorse, right, then they'll be happy. They won't. Right? God will not do that. God will not give them peace. He says there is no peace for the wicked. That was true in Israel for their wickedness. It was true of the Pharisees in Jesus' time, and it's true in America today. There is no peace for the wicked. You, he offers peace. So let me take just a couple minutes and talk about some of the implications of this. You know, first of all, I just have to point this out. Jesus starts off the chapter by highlighting Israel's hypocrisy. And if you were to look at the church today, and I use the church in quotes, right? Those who call themselves evangelical, right? I see utter hypocrisy. They say they believe in Jesus. They say they love Jesus. And then they have a form for gay and lesbian people so that we embrace them and love what they do. And I'm sorry, that's utter hypocrisy. God said, hear this, right? And is the word unclear about his moral demands? I don't think so. Read Romans 1, read 1 Corinthians 6. Pretty clear, pretty clear. But my question is not those around us. It's not those other churches. My question is about all of us in our own heart. Jesus said this in Isaiah 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Oh, man, I wish he hadn't said that, right? Jesus says, if you call him Lord and don't do what he says, you are a hypocrite. Right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Now, none of us are going to do that perfectly, this side of either the rapture or, or our passing, right? But that is what Jesus demands. Right? If you call me Lord, then you do what I say. In Titus 1.16, I'm sorry, they profess to know God, but by their works they deny him being detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. 
They profess to know God. Oh yes, I'm a Christian. I just don't do what he says. See, the, I, I'm not talking about those on the outside. I'm talking every one of us needs to examine our own hearts. And I'm talking to me as much as anybody else. I'm reminded, Jesus says, if you call me Lord, and I do, then I better do what he says. Right? I better do what he says. The next thing that we see from this passage is God will never forsake his chosen people. Never forsake his chosen people. Let me read you a quote from Altland. He says, if you are in Christ, whatever God is doing in your life right now is not an experiment that he might abandon if he gets fed up with you. You need to know that God would have to stop being God before he'd quit on you. And why is God so devoted to you? It's not because you risk looking like a failure. You already do. So do I. It's because God will never let his purpose fail. The defeat of grace to sinners would be the defeat of God. What a great quote. I wish I could write like that. Right? God is not being faithful to you because you deserve it. God is being faithful to you because He will not give His glory to another. In other words, you are to live your life to bring glory to Him. Psalm 37, 28, For Yahweh loves justice and will not forsake His holy ones. They are kept forever, but the seed of the wicked will be cut off. Hebrews 13, verse 5, Make sure that your way of life is free from the love of money. Be content with all that you have, for he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. See, because he won't do that, we, we don't love anything but him. Right? It's, it's okay to have a car or have a whatever or, or, or like your wife. It's a good idea. In fact, I suggest you love her. But not like Jesus. Right? Jesus said, if you love father, mother, sister, brother, anybody more than me, what? You are not worthy of me. There is nothing on this planet we love more than him. And then the last exhortation I would leave with you is believe God's word. He condemns Israel because he says, hear this. You've seen it. I spoke beforehand. And now you see it, you know it is true, but you're not listening. You have ears, but you don't hear. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. If you put your faith, if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. That's the word. Hear it and believe it. Mark 1, verse 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of his hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Right? God spoke it. Believe it. If it's in his word, believe it. Does God promise he will never forsake you like Romans 8? He does all things for what? You're good? 
And we said before, what does all things mean? What if you get cancer? What if you lose your job? What if this or that or the other thing? Does God still love you? Will he ever forsake you? No. Is he bringing something into your life to conform you to the image of his son? Yes, that's what we read in Romans. Because he loves you and he is doing it for whose glory? His. And that's your utmost desire. Right? That is our utmost desire is bring glory to him so we're okay with it. Hebrews 4.2 For indeed, we have uh, had good news proclaimed to us, just as they also, but the word that was heard did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard. See, you're not going to experience the joy, the pleasure, the peace, all of that, unless you believe in Jesus Christ and what he said. Right? Every, by the way, do we believe all of it? What about Genesis 1? Come on. Genesis 2, really? I believe that. Do I believe Revelation and all this, you know, Antichrist and angels and whoa, 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 and all this other stuff? Do I believe that? Yes. Do I believe everything in between, every word of it? Yes. Do I get to dismiss a single word because I don't like it? No, you don't. Right? You may think if you were born a man, you're a woman, but if you look at the Word of God, it makes it clear you're wrong. Right? You don't get to dismiss those passages you don't like. So believes God, or like he says at the beginning, hear this. We've seen it in Isaiah, and that's just my commandment to you. Hear this. Let's pray. Father, there's really a lot in this passage. Father, we see your magnificence on display when you say, I am the first and the last. Lord, you created everything. You are its founder. You spread out the heavens and you name every star and they are obedient to you. Father, your glory and your majesty are beyond comprehension and so is your grace. Lord, you saved us for your glory. Lord, as all we can do is fall before you in thanksgiving and praise because we deserve none of it. And Lord, it is our heartfelt desire to glorify you in everything we do, and we claim our dependence on the Holy Spirit to do that. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.